Well, thank you, Jimbo. Uh, my name is Josh Vance, and it's such a privilege to, to be with you this morning. Um, our team's had a wonderful weekend, uh, just spending the, the time with some of y'all's students and, um, and studying what it means to have your identity rooted in Christ. And uh, it's just so encouraging for myself anytime um, we get to serve alongside uh, another church that is just a Bible, faithful, Bible-believing church. And, and, uh, it, and whether you know it or not, you're blessed to have faithful Bible preaching here at this church. And my prayer today is that I can just continue that this morning and faithfully and clearly communicate God's Word to you. So the passage we're going to be studying today in First Peter is chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. So go ahead and turn in your Bible there. And if you don't own a Bible, you can find one of these story Bibles right in front of where you're sitting. Um, and we'd love for you to take one home with you if you do not own one. But if you do, we just suggest reading some of those glossy pages in the front first, and it'll help you understand a little bit more about what you'll find in the Bible. And this passage here in First Peter... It's kind of a painful one for me, um, and it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that this was the first passage I preached on in my seminary preaching class um, when I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but it's painful because this passage, when you spend enough time in it and let it sink in, it will ruin you. Um, it'll uncover things in you that you've tried to forget. It'll lay bare your heart before God and expose the sinful desires that battle for our affections. But in that pain, there is hope. Because when we're weak, he is strong, and when we decrease, he can increase. And it's through passages like this that we can allow the Holy Spirit to, in a sense, perform surgery on our hearts and on our minds and remove the sin that seeks to draw us away from our Heavenly Father. So if you wouldn't mind, would you please stand? And you can find this passage on page 855 in one of these story Bibles. Please stand for the reading of God's word. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is God's word. You may sit down. So the very first word in verse 13 is important to understand for our passage today because it's the word therefore. And it's meant to draw our minds back to what Peter has already told us in the first 12 verses. Exactly what Jimbo preached on last week. And what he told us was nothing short of amazing. Peter said we've been caused to be born again, we've been saved, and we've found a hope and an inheritance with God that's imperishable, unfading, and cannot be taken away. And all that is based on the fact that Jesus defeated the power of sin and death through the cross and through the resurrection. And it's with that glorious reality in mind that Peter says, therefore. And so in light of all that, he says, preparing our minds for action. Now, it's interesting, if you look at the literal translation of this phrase from the Greek, uh, it would be translated, girding the loins of your mind. That's how you'd find it in the King James Version too. And I'll admit the phrase, girding the loins of your mind, sounds kind of weird. Like what? <laughs> loins and minds don't seem to go together, but it actually paints us a pretty good picture here. 
Um, Peter was writing to a people um, that were in the Middle East, around the Mediterranean, that region, and especially back then in that culture, men would wear a long outer robe or tunic um, that would that was pretty long, and they'd have some type of belt that kind of held it all together. And it was very common to see that. So this phrase, girding your loins, referred to someone gathering up the loose ends of their robe and tucking it into their belt to prepare for some type of serious work or to move quickly. And we find that phrase several times in the Old Testament where God tells Elijah to gird your loins so he can run or God telling the Israelite people to gird your loins so they're ready to leave Egypt when the time is come. And you can look at me and probably tell I don't get on the treadmill a whole lot, not too often, but those times I do, if I have a long shirt on, I will probably tuck it in because it makes it a little easier to run. It's annoying and a hindrance to have uh, much clothing holding you back. And it's that idea here. It's us preparing and gearing up our minds to do some serious work. And that work is in response to the knowledge of verses 3 through 12. Because, you see, knowledge isn't going to cut it. Um, if you just read the book of James, James will set you straight real quick that, that simply belief or knowledge or theology isn't good enough. James 2.19 tells us that even the demons believe, and it's certainly not going to do them any good. So what we believe and what we know about God has to change the way we live and result in action. And Peter He pairs this preparing our minds with being sober-minded. And while it's a good thing not to be drunk, this isn't necessarily what Peter's getting at here. It means to have a mind that's disciplined and self-controlled and really having a mindset that is aware of God and what he's doing. Because the opposite of sober-minded here isn't to be in a drunken stupor. It's more to be in a spiritual stupor where you gradually become dull to the things of God, to what God is doing in the world around us. And, and it can happen quicker than we think without us really noticing. Because the busyness and the routine of life can often distract and cloud our minds so that we have a hard time focusing on God and recognizing that he's active around us. And, and the thing is, we usually don't go one day from being on top of the mountain on fire for God, and then the next day all of a sudden we have nothing to do with him, right? It's, it's much more subtle and it's gradual where we don't even notice that it's happening. And just over the course of time, just the busyness of life, life throws things at us, and, and slowly but surely, God is crowded out of our lives. And we become numb and blind to his actions. And so Peter calls us to instead take the initiative and to be prepared for action with a clear mind. And those two actions show that we're setting our hope fully on his grace. And Peter says this, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I love that word hope. Um, Just saying the word hope kind of brings you hope. You know, it's just one of those positive words. And and the thing about for Christians, Christian hope is distinct, right? It's, It's different than the normal hope that everyone else has because everyone hopes for things all the time. Um, maybe you hope for that promotion at work, but there's a chance you might not get it. Or maybe you hope um, that girl will say yes when you ask her out. Or maybe you're hoping that guy will ask you out, but there's a chance it might not happen. Or maybe you're hoping you win the lottery, but chances are probably not that you'll win the lottery. 
But our hope as Christians is sure. It's 100% guaranteed. It's not wishful thinking, but instead it's a quiet, bold confidence based on what Christ has accomplished. And according to Peter, it's based on the grace that will flood everything at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes again. And that's one of those awesome situations where it's still to come. It hasn't been completed yet, but the outcome is already determined. So we just purchased a a new home. We've moved to South Carolina a few months ago. We just purchased a new home, um, but I still have some work to do on it. So we haven't moved in yet, but there's no doubt that that house is mine. And I'll be moving into it at some point in the future. And in the same way, Jesus has already purchased our freedom. He has already defeated the power of sin and death. The battle is won and the victory is sure, even though the end has not yet actually happened. And for Peter's original audience, this was all the hope that they had. Persecution was real for those he was writing to. They had been dispersed and some probably forced from their homes. And see, following Christ made them an outcast, an exile. It didn't make life easier for them, but the hope that they had outweighed anything that life could throw at them. So Peter calls us and calls them to be resolute and focus on the grace that we have through what Jesus Christ accomplished and will complete. And we show that resolve by preparing our minds for action because we have work to do. Ephesians 2.10 says we've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works. It calls us his workmanship. See, God has plans for us. We have work to do. But in order to carry that out, according to Peter, we cannot conform to the world around us. Verse 14, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So he says, do not be conformed. And that word conformed has a picture of something being pressed into a mold or being shaped into a pattern. It makes me think of the Play-Doh that my my two kids at home play with. Like Play-Doh is completely moldable. You can cut it, you can smush it, squeeze it, shape it into anything you want. And Peter says, don't let the world treat you like Play-Doh. Don't let it mold you into its own image. And Paul says a very similar thing in, in Romans 12 too, saying, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. But here Peter says, don't be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. He's saying, don't go back to the lives you lived before you met Christ. And let me pause there a second. Have you thanked God recently that you are not who you used to be? I'm sure if we took a survey in this room, even without knowing hardly any of y'all, we could probably make a long list of past that we're glad that we do not have any longer. Maybe you were a cheater, a drunk, an adulterer, a slugger, a hypocrite, greedy, jealous, hateful, all kinds of things. But thanks be to God that we aren't who we once were because God, through Christ, has set us free. He broke the chains of sin that bound us, but sometimes we're tempted to put those chains back on ourselves. And Peter says, don't be forced back into that mold of who you were before Christ. Don't go back to that old way of living. And the truth is, the Christian life isn't passive. When you're saved, unfortunately, you don't become invincible to sin and temptation. I wish that was true. That would be awesome. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen. Salvation isn't the end goal. It is really just the beginning of our work. Salvation is just the beginning of the Christian walk. You see, Jesus does all the work in salvation, Like Jesus does all the work in salvation, and then our work really begins after that. 
And if you remain passive in your faith, you're naturally going to conform to this world in the culture around you. I, I grew up in Memphis near the Mississippi River, and the Mississippi is a big old muddy river. Um, but it's a powerful river. And if I was to go out and just hop down in the middle of it and do nothing, it would take me all the way to the Gulf of Mexico eventually. It'd take me wherever it wanted because it's too powerful for me to do nothing and expect to stay in the same place. And in a similar way, the culture around us is like a current. And if we don't do anything, it's going to sweep us along with it. We have to put effort into fighting against the current and against the temptation to go along with the world. And it really comes down to leaving us with two options. We can either conform to the culture around us or we can conform to Christ. So neutrality is not an option. With every decision or non-decision we make, we're always moving either farther away from God or closer to God. And finally, in verse 15, we get to the main command of this passage. Really, the the crucial part here, rather than conforming to the world, Peter says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. I think it's it's important that Peter reminds us that we are called. See, we're first called and then we are commanded. See, God's grace always precedes his commands. And we can't get that out of order. It's our human tendency to think that we have to, um, to do something first in order to earn God's favor or God's grace or God's blessing. Um, because everything, in, everything else in life is usually earned. You have to work hard for a degree. You have to work hard for money. And especially in our American culture, we, uh, we have this value of being self-made and chasing your dreams But all throughout the Bible, we find that the calling of God and his grace comes first. And it's completely based on his goodness and his mercy and his character. And it has nothing to do with us at all. We can't earn it or deserve it. And Peter reminds us over and over again in his letter that we're called into God's grace first. And then we're called to live holy lives in response to that grace. So this word holy, um, it's one of those words... Um, holy, holiness, it, it seemed very rare and foreign uh, of a concept in our culture today. And even for many of us as Christians, it's one of those words that we may come across in the Bible and we or sing it in a song and we nod our head and say, yeah, holiness is good. But we, we might not really understand what it is or why it's so important. But Peter commands us to be holy. And in the Old Testament, the word used for holy or holiness literally meant to be um, cut off or to be set apart and separate. So it would imply that to be holy, you're set apart and separated from things that are unclean and evil. You're completely dedicated to God. And then in the New Testament, it kind of takes on a more moral aspect. And I like how author Jerry Bridges, he defines holiness simply as this. Holiness is nothing less than conformity to the image of God. Holiness is nothing less than conformity to the image of God. So instead of conforming to the world, we pursue holiness and conform to the image of God, to Christ. And Peter adds, we do this in all our conduct. You see, holiness is holistic. You don't get to pick and choose which areas you want to be holy in. It's to be completely set apart from evil. And it's so easy for us to to try to minimize and rationalize and justify some sins in our lives that we just don't want to work that hard to get rid of. Um, We tell ourselves, 
uh, I cuss a little bit or get drank, drunk here and there, but I'm really a generous, loving person. Or, um, yeah, I, I'm torn up by lust or greed or jealousy, but I'm really a kind person. I don't hurt anyone. And we're masters at convincing ourselves that we're not actually that bad. We even stop calling sin, sin sometimes, and we call it vices instead to try to make it sound like it's not that bad. But holiness demands that we live differently, that we live set apart in every area of our lives. And this command is actually referencing a command that God gave the Israelite people over a thousand years before. And he gives them this command multiple times throughout, especially throughout the book of Leviticus. He brought them out of slavery in the land of Egypt and was bringing them into a new land in which they'd be surrounded by all these other nations. And all these other nations worshipped all these other gods. And also all these other nations were mightier, wealthier, and stronger than the Israelites. And it would be tempting for the Israelite people to become more like these other nations to make their life a little easier, to win the favor of these other nations. They'd be tempted to take part in religious practices that honored these other gods. But in the midst of this land filled with idols, God called his people to be holy, to live set apart, to live lives distinctly different from that of the people around them. They would essentially be living like outsiders or foreigners who were different. And that's exactly what God calls us to do still today. Not as a physical nation, but as his people, the body of Christ. And this series caption about being elect exiles is perfect. Because nothing will make you feel more like an exile or a foreigner in this world than pursuing holiness. Um, as a teenager, holiness might mean you don't go to some parties because you know everything that's going to be there is going to push you farther away from God. And that might cost you some friends or some popularity. Um, there are plenty of times as a student at the University, uh, the University of Tennessee that I felt like an outsider because of my beliefs and because of my lifestyle. Or maybe as an adult, even pursuing holiness might mean that you don't take part in certain business practices that are a little less than ethical or that you don't take part in conversations that are laced with gossip or vulgarity or lust. And oftentimes that will mean you're on the outside of the cool crowd. And the cool crowd isn't just a problem for teenagers. That's a problem for everyone. And maybe it'll actually hinder you from getting that promotion or that job you wanted. But that's okay. Christianity was never meant to make you popular. Jesus was clear with his disciples and told them that if you follow me, the world will hate you because it hated me first. So I understand that pursuing holiness is hard and it will likely cost you something in life. But when it gets hard, you look back to verses 3 through 12. You remember that we've been called with a living hope, an inheritance that can never fade away, and we've been given salvation In Hebrews 11.26, it tells us that Moses regarded suffering for the sake of Christ as worth more value than all the treasures of Egypt. And for us, that precious gift of salvation is of infinitely greater worth than anything the world could ever give you or take from you. We must continually set our hope on him. But you know, the most difficult part of this passage is that little word, as, in verse 15. That little word as sets up a comparison. It doesn't just say be holy. It doesn't say be as holy as your grandmother. It doesn't say be as holy as the best person you know. It says as he who called you, that is God, is holy, 
you be holy. So in other words, the standard for our holiness is the standard of God himself. And that changes everything. And this is very typical of God. When he calls somebody to do something or be something, he sets himself up as the standard. He says to walk in the light as he is in the light, to love others as he has loved us, and to be holy as he is holy. And the weight of that can be crushing when you think about it too much, because how can we possibly be as holy as a perfectly holy God? And the answer is that we can't, at least not on our own. Um, If someone ever tells you that God won't give you more than you can handle or won't call you to do something you can't do, then they're not really giving you the whole truth because it seems when you look at the Bible that God loves to give us more than we can handle. He loves to call us to do things that we can't do because it forces us to rely on Him and to remain dependent on Him. It forces us to rely on Him for our strength and our daily bread. So God sets Himself up as the standard, and that keeps us from comparing ourselves to others too. Our only standard for holiness is God Himself. And even this week, as I studied this passage, I felt the pressure of preaching this passage. Um, it's one thing if you if you're preaching on a passage or a sin that you know that maybe you don't personally struggle with all that much. But how can I preach on holiness? Um, there's no one that could stand in this pulpit and tell you. I perfected holiness. Let me tell you how I did it. That, that, that just won't happen. The re- reality is the more you dwell and focus on God's holiness, the more it will expose the sin in your own life. It's, it's like looking if you, you know, turn on the tap water, fill up a glass, and the water looks pretty clean, hopefully. It probably looks clean to look at it. But if you were to take a drop of that water and put it under a microscope, all of a sudden you find there's all kinds of weird-looking things swimming around in that water. And in the same way, most of us in here probably live decent lives, what people would call decent lives. Decent enough people on the surface, people would say, yeah, that person, they're kind, they're pretty nice. But then when we put our lives under the microscope of God's holiness, all of a sudden it exposes things in us that we tried to hide, that we tried to overlook and things that need to be ripped out of our life in order for us to conform to the image of Christ. So, how can we respond today to God's Word? In light of this command to be holy, the, I think the place to start is to evaluate your own life. In asking the question, does my life meet God's standard for holiness? And the only way to know that is to dive into God's Word. The only way that we know how we ought to live is according to His Word. You see, Scripture is the mirror that we should look in to inspect ourselves spiritually. Just like we can't compare ourselves to anybody else, you can't compare your life spiritually to your best friend or to your parents or your pastor or anybody else. We have to look into the mirror of Scripture and look at the standard of God, and we should pray to God to reveal the things that we may have overlooked. In Psalm 139, David, he prays this prayer. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, David, he wanted to pursue holiness with such um, a fervor that he asked God, Search my heart. Let me know if there's something that I have overlooked, that I've hidden, that I've ignored. And I, if you dare, I'd pr- I would encourage you to pray that prayer yourself. But be prepared because God will expose something. 
God will expose something when you ask him that prayer. And then in response to that, we must repent of those sins and live differently. Or maybe you're in here this morning and uh, maybe all this is new to you and, and you haven't yet put your faith in Christ. That is the first step to begin pursuing holiness. And the writer of Hebrews tells us without faith, it's impossible to please God, much less pursue holiness. So if that's you today, then the scripture is clear that all we must do is to believe in Jesus, that he died for our sins and rose again and to repent of those sins. And to repent means to turn and go the other way and live differently. And never forget that the pursuit of holiness isn't a slavish chore. It's not forced labor. If it feels like that to you, then you're probably not doing it the way that God intended. Pursuing holiness is hard, but it should be a joy because in reality, it's all a response to the fact that we are elect exiles who've been called out by God in a way to glorious inheritance that can never be taken away, that can never fade, and that can never perish. So as I close this in prayer in a second, um, in whichever way you need to respond um, today, whether that's coming up and talking uh, with a pastor, I know Jimbo will be up front, or just praying right where you're at, um, whether it's giving your life to God for the very first time, or just praying that, God, would you search my heart? Would you tear things out of me that I've left there so I can pursue holiness? Respond as God will lead you. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for, for the people in this room, God, and that, that we aren't here by accident. God, just thank you that you call us to holiness, but you don't leave us to, to try to figure out on our own, God, but you've given us the standard of your perfect and holy Son in your word. God, I just pray that for all of us in here, God, that you'd convict us today of the sin that we have left there. And then with your power that we would overcome it and repent and turn from it. And God, that, that maybe today would be a catalyst and a starting point from which we decide to live differently. We can look back and say, that's the day I decided to pursue holiness like I never had before. It is in your name we pray. Amen.